You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hello and welcome to our end-of-year worldview, perspectives on world affairs from the Irish Times Network of Foreign Correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. In trying to capture the essence of what has been a tumultuous year, instead of going back chronologically, I've asked our correspondents to reflect briefly on a few of the faces that have made the year. Not necessarily for good, they each somehow, though, have caught the mood of the moment emerging by force of personality or chance as transformative figures or emblematic of the times. So we'll have Derek Scally on Angela Merkel, whose astonishing open-door invitation in September to migrants seemed to be so out of character with the cautious politician of old, but she caught a mood in Germany. Suzanne Lynch on Alexis Tsipras, the revolutionary who ended up persuading Greece to accept its Euro-medicine and whose example has inspired a new brand of politician and politics throughout Europe from Spain to Britain. Dennis Staunton on David Cameron, who would have predicted, who did indeed predict his landslide election victory, uh, but whose leadership, despite himself, may end up pulling Britain out of Europe. And Lara Marlowe on Laurence Toubiana, France's top climate change envoy, whose 18 months of near-constant world travel and, and preparatory diplomatic work helped lay the basis for the success of the Paris Climate Summit. A rather Eurocentric bunch, I must confess, unrepresentative you may feel and may be right. So I'm throwing in for good measure Simon Carswell on the larger-than-life grotesque Donald Trump, who has brought the Republican race for the presidency to new lows, but also epitomizes in a strangely universal way the emergence of an anti-politics that also found expression in many European countries in the growing strength of anti-Islamist forces on the far right. Derek, the new Angela Merkel is a revelation, a time person of the year, perhaps most remarkable, not, not just in the generosity of her open-door policy, but in her political antennae, which seemed to have told her that her unexpected act was completely in tune with the public mood. Where did this come from uh, in her background? Well, it's, the, it's basically the big question that everyone is sitting around their ta- tables uh, this Christmas saying, who is this woman uh, who's leading Germany and what has she done with Angela Merkel? Because uh, as we know from the Euro crisis, many people were always frustrated by uh, the notion that nothing could happen without Germany, but nothing was happening in Germany because the Euro crisis was so unsure. Nobody knew where things were going. And Merkel is somebody who tends not to move. At least she was somebody who tends not to move until she knows the way the, way the wind's blowing, the way things are developing, so that she can be on the winning side of the political uh, debate when it concludes. But um, this year in August and September, she just seems to have shed her skin and she, she, she just has performed a remarkable transformation 10 years uh, into her chancellery. And she's, she just said, look, we are now facing a biblical um, uh, immigration wave and it is our moral, economic and political obligation uh, to make sure that this is mastered. And she said this remarkable phrase, which has sort of entered the, the German political annals already, we can do this, is almost like the, the Germanic equivalent of, of yes, we can. And uh, it's uh, what we've seen in the, the second half of this year has been one half of Germany saying, yes, we can and must master this and completely supporting Merkel. But on the other hand, there's another half of the country saying, hang on, we are 80 million people. We are a rich country, a prosperous country, a strong country. But can 80 million people really absorb 1 million people almost overnight? Uh, can this work? And 
she has basically faced down her critics inside her party. She's uh, knocking heads together in Brussels and saying we can and will do this and uh, we will all be measured on how we respond to this. And uh, by, by comparison, the euro crisis was just sort of a, a walk in the park. And is, is it your sense that this is an act of idealism, a commitment to European unity and to the idea of solidarity in Europe? Or are some are suggesting a more pragmatic calculation that the German population uh, imbalance, which is, which is looming large, requires new labour and requ- requires mar- migrants? Well, I've heard both arguments. Um, the thing about the, the note, it's very nice to say, oh, yes, this is, um, this is going to address Germany's uh, demographic time bomb. Uh, Germany is the most, uh, the aging, the oldest country in Europe, and it's getting older by the day. To be honest, I've not really heard that. A uh, lot of the business people, uh, business uh, representative associations here are all in favor of, of the migration. And I think that's basically prime on their radars. But I honestly think what Merkel, it's literally just, uh, this is, this is global, this is the ultimate globalized political uh, challenge. Uh, in a, we've had a globalized world. We've t- been talking about globalized economies for years, but now we have a globalized problem, a globalized challenge. And there's just no way around it. And I, I spoke to one of Merkel's advisors recently. I said, do you even recognize your boss anymore? And he said, oh, of course. Uh, this is the same woman it's always been. She has always been known for what she calls alternative-less politics. When she analyzes the situation and she sees no alternative than to act a certain way, she just goes for it. And um, it took her a while to get her herself in gear for the euro crisis. But once she decided to save Greece, um, they did, and she stuck with it, and it was very painful for Greece, and many people would argue with their strategy, but she went for it, and it worked. And um, what we're seeing now is uh, people saying, uh, it's just, she's just decided, well, what is the alternative to this? There is no alternative. We either leave them on the beaches to die, we either send them back to Syria, or we bring them in, and we try and share the load, try and make the best of this, and try and turn it to our advantage. Many people here, of course, are saying she's been in power for 10 years. This is the classic sign of somebody who's been in power for too long, losing touch with reality, because the reality on the ground in Germany is that local authorities uh, are struggling to put people up in accommodation. These are things Merkel doesn't have to worry about. She doesn't have to worry about feeding refugees or or housing them or integrating them. That's all local politics. She's more... uh, She's more the macro woman, and um, so she's got the macro politics in view, but many local politicians here are saying, with the best will in the world, another year and and another million people uh, will bring us to our knees. But the reality is also, is it not, that although she faces opposition within her own party, there isn't a serious threat to her as chancellor, and it isn't going to affect her political longevity. No, not in that sense. Um, at this stage, she really has nothing to lose. If she was to leave power tomorrow, she'd have had a very respectable run. She's had half of her chancellorship has been one crisis after another. At the recent party conference of her Christian Democrats, she just listed her work uh, for this week, uh, for this year. There's Greece, there's many times Syria, including sending uh, a deployment of German troops to Syria. This, we had France twice. She had, don't forget the Ukraine diplomacy. You know, for, She was awake for 48 hours in the middle of the year trying to stop uh, the Ukraine standoff with Russia getting worse. Um, and then this refugee crisis. So she's a woman who's mastered quite a lot, and I think many people are feeling she has actually nothing to lose. But there are two things I think she needs to keep in mind. One is there was a poll out this week for a Hamburg Foundation. It shows that two-thirds of people in Germany are fearful for the future, this famous German Zukunftsangst, uh, and it's back. Uh, despite a robust economy and a record jobless rate, very low jobless rate, 
people are very gloomy, young people are very gloomy. So that, I think, is one. Two-thirds of people are fearful of the future, and I think the refugee crisis is playing for that. And that is something that populists can play into. We're not near anything like in France or other countries, but I think that's something she needs to keep in mind. And the second thing, obviously, is Germany has been spared um, a terrorist attack so far. Luckily, there have been several that have been caught just in time, but everyone here gloomily says it's only a matter of time before something happens. And with Germany participating in the alliance against IS, uh, it's pretty much a matter of time before something big happens. And when something big happens, this could all the wheels could come off this quite quickly, and Merkel could suddenly see herself uh, quite alone. And people in her party who are resentful of her her stance on refugees and think Germany should be more tough on this and more restrictive, they could seize their moment then. But as it stands now, she's had a good 10 years, and I think she, at this stage, uh, just judging by how her face has been uh, falling in on itself in the last year, the makeup can't even cover her exhaustion at this stage. So I think she's probably felt, well, I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to try for this, and if I try and fail, at least I tried my best. And, finally, and that's a lot more than a lot of our European colleagues could say. And, and finally, Derek, do, do you think this, very briefly, has affected her relationship with her fellow European leaders? I think so. I mean, we've seen uh, lots of other countries, including Italy and other people, saying, uh, well, hang on, you're demanding solidarity now, where and you're, you're sort of bending the rules of migration uh, now, and you're not registering everyone, every Syrian coming into Germany now, whereas these are rules, you know, Germany is now not sticking to the rule book and other, uh, urging other people to not stick to the rule book, but when other countries don't stick to the rule book, like Italy or Greece, Germany was the first to come in with the stick. So I don't think the goodwill towards Germany is what it could be, and that could blow back on Merkel next year. Thank you very much, Derek. Suzanne, the year started with a personal confrontation between Alexis Tsipras and Merkel over what he saw as German intransigence over Greek debt. And in many ways, the year was transformational for him as much as for her. Perhaps you could track the transition from sort of inveterate oppositionist of Tsipras to Prime Minister Tsipras. Yes, well, this time last year, um, the Greek election had just been called, but nobody saw the impact I think that Cyprus was going to have um, over the next few months. Now, he had been around in politics for the last few years. He's been a presence in the Greek political domestic scene. Uh, but this year we saw him as leader, as prime minister. Um, and the Greek elections on the 25th of January um, gave Sarita a decisive majority, not a full outright majority, uh, but put them on the path to power. Now, I mean... As the six months, it really was a six-month crisis culminating in uh, the bailout decision on the weekend of the uh, 12th of July. Um, but over that month, there were, there were plenty of, of twists and turns. And at the beginning of the crisis, there was talk from all the other EU leaders about working constructively with the new government, about listening to the will of the people, etc. Um, but very soon, um, as the months went on, uh, it became more of a conflict situation. And we very much had this characterisation of Cyprus, Greece in one corner and, and the other countries, if you like, ganging up on him. Um, uh, obviously, the significance of his victory... Um, really was not just limited to, to Greece, but was hugely important in terms of its ramification for other um, left-wing uh, leaders. You could see Corbyn during the year, for example, of the Labour opposition, um, Podemos in Spain, etc. So I think all eyes were going to be, always going to be on how he performed um, as Prime Minister, going from a party of opposition to uh, a party of power. And the, the, the critical thing was his decision that he had to eventually go with the package that Europe was proposing and he had to persuade his party uh, to go with him and he had to persuade the Greek people. Now, the, the trick was uh, to use, if you like, the democratic 
system to to call a, a vote on on the issue. Because it, yes, exactly. Because in many ways it was the biggest political climb down. We have a situation now that Greece is now facing into a bigger austerity program than than Cyprus and Syriza ever imagined, and it symbolises everything they were opposed to in opposition. And yet, how is it that he manages to? Um, gain ownership of of this if you like and stand he is still prime minister um at the moment um i think the decision um to call a referendum was clever at the time it seemed bizarre there wasn't even a strict question no one knew quite what they were uh, voting for um but um that was that was one decision by him but more importantly after the bailout was negotiated in july he then uh, went to the polls again and call, calling that election i think has secu- has secured uh, his power in a sense because uh, that allowed him to put this package to the Greek people and arguably more importantly purge um, the the very strong anti-left in his own party who split uh, from Sritta at that, at that point. Uh, so again, it kind of increased his political legitimacy. Now, we are now at the beginning of a three-year bailout programme. You know, the, the negotiations are going to continue with the Troika over the next few months. So it's by no means a, a finished deal and there could be a lot of political obstacles uh, still still in sight for Cyprus. But undoubtedly, he's managed to bring the Greek people with them and um, he just managed to say we had no choice, essentially, that we were pushed into a corner and it, it seems that most of the Greek populace are prepared to back him on that and support him on that. And in terms of polling at the moment, he, he, is, he is still... Very popular. Yes, exactly. They feel, I think, the, the sense, and, and a lot of people in Brussels maintain it is a sad reflection on the European Union that actually, the, you know, that the Greeks people feel so let down that they, they were pushed into a corner and that Cypress did his best. Um, and the blame is solely uh, at the door of other uh, EU countries and EU institutions and, and, and particularly Germany. Um, and there seems to be very little blame being, being attached to Syriza and their negotiation uh, style. Um, I think the decision to be rid of Yanis Varoufakis, the finance minister, was also a good move on, on Cyprus's part. And it showed that he had political judgment, that when it came to it, uh, he was able to make changes within his cabinet, within his government. Um, he could he could read that things were not going well with Varoufakis um, uh, and, um, and and sacked him, essentially, uh, and, and took over the negotiations himself. Um, so again, we kind of saw... A, a, a maturing, if you like, some would say, of his political style as uh, as the months went on. And of course, and, and you've mentioned this, his effect has been far beyond Greece. He's given the the hard left throughout Europe a new new language, a new agenda. Uh, he's provided inspiration for Podemos, for the mm. Linke in Germany, even even for Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. I think. Um, What's significant is he is the first example of this kind of radical left party in government. But I think what's, it's going to play out in the Irish election, for example, next year. We obviously saw a lot of um, very, uh, hard left parties in Ireland and politicians actually travelling uh, to Athens um, to, and, and vocally supporting uh, Syriza. Um, and then um, once the bailout was signed, that support uh, didn't seem to be so forthcoming. Um, so how far parties across Europe... I mean, it was this very interesting idea of a kind of communist workers of the world unite, kind of pan-European leftism. Um, but whether that, that follows through is another thing. Um, when voters see the political reality of what Greece have, have had to sign up to, obviously Podemos did not do as well as some might have expected earlier on in the year in Spain. Um, they did do very well. They're now Kingmaker is, is undoubtedly disrupted uh, the political landscape in Spain. Um, but whether we're actually going to see a radical left party that in power coming into power in another country 
that kind of majority probably won't happen in the foreseeable future. The Podemos actually distanced themselves a bit from from uh, uh, Syriza in the course of, of of the campaign, I think. And I think uh, here we've seen uh, Sinn Féin are still strong supporters, but uh, the Socialist Party have have uh, decried his uh, treachery. And uh, anyway, uh, and in, in terms of, of his own position, it's pretty secure now. There's no question. It appears him. to be, but there are definitely some warning signs. Um, the Troika officials, the first review of the bailout, of the third bailout, is due in January or February, and that is really going to be crunch point there. Um, there's still a lot of changes that have to be pushed through, speeding up of privatisations, um, more changes to pensions, um, and, and certain changes to tax system as well. So these are going to be hard hard battles uh, for Saritza uh, to, to win and, uh, and to fight and win. Um, but So there are, there are uh, crucial key moments coming up in the next year which will be structured around these Troika visits like we had in Ireland. Um, and, and it'll be at that moment that, that Saritza will probably be at its most weak. Dennis, uh, for many, the shock of the year in British politics was Corbyn's election and the internal turmoil in the Labour Party. But in truth, the success of bland man David Cameron in the general election, and indeed the Scottish referendum in September 2014, was the important catalyst. Cameron has surprised. It's not just been the failure of the opposition, but he seems to have hidden depths. And at the recent uh, European summit, he, uh, he was widely admired for his contribution. Is this a new Cameron that we're seeing? No, I think Cameron is somebody who has uh, displayed quite a number of, uh, of quite significant political skills over the years. But uh, because of his manner, uh, which has been uh, a kind of a rather... A bland approach, uh, for example, during the election campaign running up to May's election. He was criticized often for not appearing to do very much. And so he had to give this interview where he was saying, I really have got the stomach for, for the fight. I'm really dying to win and, uh, and sounding aggressive. But his natural demeanor tends to be quite laid back. But this can conceal something which is, uh, which is a political skill, but also a ruthlessness. And if you look at the reason why the Conservatives succeeded in uh, winning their overall majority in May, and it was a small overall majority. It was because of the ruthlessness with which they targeted their erstwhile coalition partners, the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats, although people continue to speak about them as a major or serious political force, they only have eight members of Parliament, of whom only a handful even show up. So they're really a very marginal force, and they were effectively destroyed by uh, the ruthlessness of the Conservative machine. There's there are senior British officials who believe that Cameron could take uh, could make a difference of about twenty percent in any referendum on, on on Brexit, and that there's a sort of hidden underground sympathy for Cameron himself rather than the Tories. Certainly, the uh, the opinion polls would suggest that that's true. That there is a big Cameron factor. I think people now perceive him as being a safe pair of hands. Of uh, you know, he's positioned himself as being. Uh, a fairly moderate, non-ideological person. If you look at his uh, his conference speech at the first Conservative Party conference after the election, he was very deliberately uh, hitting a very centrist tone, speaking about uh, personal freedom and all of that, as opposed to uh, you know, giving the red meat to the Conservative membership. And so I think he is uh, now, enhanced by his victory, he is probably uh, a very formidable factor in the European campaign. Having said that, 
It's a tricky one because, as we know in Ireland, referendums are unpredictable. You don't know exactly which question people are going to decide they're answering on the day. And there's also perhaps a problem that uh, structurally the, uh, the, the Remain campaign, uh, the people want to remain in the European Union, they haven't really got out of the traps yet because they uh, are waiting for David Cameron to come back with this renegotiation from Brussels, which he'll probably do in February. Uh, meanwhile, the, uh, the anti-European campaigns are, have got themselves up and running a bit more. And they will probably, if they can get their act together, they're, they're quite divided on that side as well they'll probably uh, be able to present a more emotional appeal to people, whereas it looks as if the Yes campaign, the Remain campaign, is going to be a pretty technocratic one. It's going to be about the balance of risks. And it's going to be rather as the, uh, the second referendums we sometimes had in Ireland over Nice and Lisbon, if you remember, the first referendum uh, in each one, uh, uh, the, the pro-European campaign tended to take a fairly softly, softly respectful approach, and then we voted no. And then for the second one, you had something like Project Fear, which was vote yes or you might lose your job and here's your boss to, uh, to amplify that view. So, and, uh, so you may get some of that in this one too. But it was a strategy which won them the uh, Scottish referendum in, in September Absolutely, it did. It did, but, have it, but again, I think the, the, the interesting thing is if you look at it, I mean, most of the polling, uh, although it, it, it looks pretty close, but still if you dig deeper into it, most people still feel as if the more likely outcome is that Britain votes to remain in the European Union. But the margin by which they make that decision and the tenor of the campaign, what happens during the campaign, could make a big difference to the more medium-term or longer-term future of Britain in Europe. Because it could be that you have what you had in Scotland, which was a victory for the, uh, for the side that wanted to remain in the Union, but not a conclusive victory. And so I think we all agree that the uh, issue of Scottish independence has not drifted too far off the agenda. Now, from an Irish perspective, and, and particularly on the issue of Brexit, his weakness in establishing his authority in the Tory party is quite notable. He's been dragged along and, and indeed was forced to call the referendum very much against his will. This is not a Mrs Thatcher. No, but he, he is, of course, inheriting what Mrs. Thatcher left for all of her successors, which was uh, a party deeply divided over Europe. And, uh, and in the intervening years uh, after uh, John Major's defeat, uh, as the Conservative Party shrank, what happened was that it also moved further towards the right. And so of each new intake tended to be more Eurosceptic than the previous one. So uh, I think no matter who the leader was, they were going to be uh, dealing with a party that was fractured. There's no question but that he did agree to do the referendum in response to pressure from his own backbenchers. And that is probably a mistake. He probably, uh, in retrospect, could have got away without doing that. And, of course, it's potentially uh, a, a mistake that, uh, that could have huge consequences for Britain and for Europe. Now, the other thing about Thatcher is that she left, if you like, a an ideological legacy of Thatcherism. Is, is there such a thing as Cameronism? I don't think there is, really, no. Yeah, there's, uh, there might be something like Osbornism after George Osborne. But no, I think uh, David Cameron, he's, he's a conservative in uh, both the small C and the large C sense. Um, he believes in uh, free enterprise, but he's not hugely uh, ideological. 
And he doesn't seem to be somebody who's terribly gripped by great plans or great ideas. The very fact that uh, he uh, said before the election that he was going to uh, leave the, uh, the prime ministership before the end of the current term, and that he seems to, to continue to be comfortable in that decision, suggests that it's, uh, he's somebody without the kind of uh, messianic zeal that someone like Mrs. Thatcher or that many more ideological politicians have. I think he, uh, he's, uh, he's also perhaps at his best when he's at his, uh, at his most managerial. And, uh, and that is, in a, way, in a way, perhaps what's going to be persuasive about him when it comes to the uh, European referendum. If he is campaigning to stay in the European Union, he'll be able to present himself or present the case as being a very safe, mainstream case. And so on, ba- on the balance of risks, you should just stay in. Thank you, Dennis. Now, stay with us to hear Lara Marlowe on Laurence Tubiana and Simon Carswell on Donald Trump. You're listening to the Irish Times. Lara, in the wake of the tragic events in Paris, there was a great diplomatic triumph for the, for the French at the end of the year uh, in the climate conference. Uh, in some measure, that was a tribute to Laurence uh, Tubiana. Uh, who is she and where did she come from? Uh, well, in, in a very great measure, in fact, Paris, uh, Liberation newspaper says that Tubiana was the linchpin of the climate agreement, and I think that's pretty accurate. She's 64 years old. Uh, she was born in Algeria. Her father was an Algerian Jew, and her mother was half Greek and half French and a Catholic. And the family had to leave Algeria when Laurence was 11 years old uh, at the time of independence. Uh, she studied at Sciences Po, which is the sort of breeding ground for the French elite, if you like. Uh, she specialized in economics, agriculture, and development. And she co-founded uh, a think tank called IDRI, Institut du Développement Durable et des Relations Internationales. Uh, she built up over the years a, an immense network in research, think tanks, universities, governments. Uh, she worked in China and India uh, and as an advisor to quite a few governments. Uh, back in nine, uh, sorry, back in 2014, uh, when Laurent Fabius, the French foreign minister, was um, putting together his team for the COP21 climate conference, he asked Tubiana if she would be his negotiator uh, at the at the conference, and she accepted. And she spent, as you said, um, you know, the last 18 months flying around the world. Uh, she, as a measure of her determination is that she hurt her ankle very badly last spring when she fell from a horse, and she only wears sneakers now. She, she had a, a different pair for every day of the climate conference. Uh, and a week before the climate conference started, she had her appendix removed. Uh, so she had a little uh, electric golf cart that they called the Tubiana Mobile that she tooled around the conference in. Uh, but she's, she's very diplomatic, although she's not a career diplomat. She's a very diplomatic person. She talks to people. She listens to them. She said that one of her strengths in the conference was that she's not, she doesn't feel that she's come from a specific social class or country. She feels she can relate to all people of all backgrounds. Um, she started actually as in politics with Lionel Jospin, who was, you may remember, was the socialist prime minister. She was head of research in his cabinet. Uh, so that's, that's her background. And she also, by the way, was very good friends or continues to be a very close friend of Christiana Figueres, 
who is the head of, of uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it was quite moving at the end of the uh, conference on, on the Saturday when they announced the agreement. The two of them threw each other, threw themselves into each other's arms and were sobbing tears of joy. Uh, and they came up with a, a slogan, which I thought was quite clever. They said that climate is about ecosystems, but climate conference negotiations are about ecosystems. Very much a woman's perspective on, on the negotiating. Yes. <laughs> and, and she, uh, I mean, that was the, her success was largely through, through networking, that, that the, she had established academic and, and political connections over the years uh, that no, she, okay, she no, plumbed. Very, very hard work. I mean, she and Fabius worked very well together. Uh, she didn't hit it off with Ségolène Royal, by the way. Fabius had uh, asked her and her team of 60 people to be posted in the environment ministry with, with Ségolène Royal, and they, they never really, um, they just, it, it didn't, didn't work. There was no chemistry between them. But she and Fabius went to all of the um, forerunner meetings in, in Bonn together. Uh, they received the ministers of foreign affairs and the environment from all the participant countries uh, in Paris at least three times before the conference. They got to know all of them. They were on, all, on first-name basis. Uh, she, she said she gave a big interview to Libération newspaper a, a couple of days ago, and she said that Fabius was sort of the timekeeper and the authority in the negotiations, whereas she was sort of at a lower level. She was in contact with everybody, and she was reminding everybody that this was the, pos the, the best possible agreement, that, that there was no plan B. And it was very much, um, that's very important in the sense that, that uh, before the summit, uh, there, was, there were considerable fears that this would be another Copenhagen, that, that this would be another uh, summit in which nothing was agreed. Uh, and yet they seem to have pulled the rabbit out of that. Yes, I think they were much better prepared than the Danes. There were several reports that said that the, the Danes uh, had not really exercised diplomacy. You have to remember that France has the second largest diplomatic network in the world after the U.S. And uh, Tubiana, for example, flew to embassies all over the world. She invited people to dinner at the embassies. They wined and dined government people and delegates, but also journalists and even uh, climate skeptics. Uh, so it was really a question of a, a lot, a huge amount of, of groundwork, I think, that, that paid off. And is there, uh, is there any idea that what she's going to do now? Is, is there a career in politics for her? Um, I've seen several uh, possibilities. One is she may actually go and work for the United Nations. She has an offer to teach at Stanford. Uh, she's taught before at Sciences Po in Paris and at Columbia University in New York. And uh, she also uh, reportedly has a job offer at Sciences Po. So I, d I don't think she'll be wanting for opportunities. Thank you, Lara. And finally to Washington, where our correspondent Simon Carswell has been watching fascinated the most bizarre and lively Republican primaries in a generation. Well, the man who dominated U.S. politics this year, not for positive reasons, was, of course, Donald Trump, the property magnate and reality TV star who stunned the political establishment here by soaring to the front of the race to win the Republican presidential nomination and remaining the frontrunner for more than five months. Trump was ridiculed and written off when he descended an escalator at Trump Tower to announce his presidential campaign. From there, he proceeded to begin his months-long campaign of inflammatory insults by dropping his first verbal bomb. Uh, that Mexico is sending rapists and drug dealers across the border. From there, he's gone on to insult women, 
protesters from the Black Lives Matter movement, President Obama and his Republican rivals. And he's made radical pro- proposals such as building a wall along the Mexican border to keep immigrants out, uh, forcibly deporting 11 million illegal immigrants and barring Muslims from entering the country while the U.S. figures out how to deal with the threat from Islamic State militants. Trump's insurgent campaign has been remarkable for its unexpected durability. In previous campaigns, we've seen high-profile candidates such as former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and right-wing candidates such as um, Minnesota Congresswoman Michelle Bachman and former pizza magnate Herman Cain. Uh, we've seen their support ebb away after initially surging in the race. Trump, in contrast, has stayed at the front of the race with the exception of just a few polls, and his lead in the national polls is more than double that of his closest rival. The large field of candidates, there are 13 in the race, means there is no strong, uh, single, uh, moderate candidate to challenge him as the establishment support is diluted by several candidates competing for the same voters. Trump's in, in a statistical tie with another candidate, the conservative Texas Senator Ted Cruz in Iowa, which on February 1st is going to be the first state uh, to start picking nominees from both parties. Trump is ahead in the second state, New Hampshire, which chooses its nominees nine days later. Trump's grandiose, bombastic campaign has appealed to emotion and prejudice, and he's dragged some of the other candidates to the right after his anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim rhetoric found strong support from white, uneducated, conservative voters. Although the base is significant at anywhere between 25 and 30 percent of Republican voters, and this base is very vocal, it's a minority view among the party supporters and an even smaller view among the wider electorate. Um, supporters are fed up with seven years of Barack Obama and a Democratic White House, as well as with the dysfunctional Congress and politicians in general. They like the fact that Trump is an independent, he's a non-politician, he's a rich, successful businessman who doesn't rely on outside interests and big donors to set the agenda. Um, They see Trump as genuine, authentic, uh, at a time when they feel politicians are playing to the agendas of others. They like his irreverent, blustering campaign speeches, his attacks on people from Muslims to mainstream media, to the other Republican candidates, and like his simple black and white solutions to complex issues. Um, at a time of great concern in America, like the threat of terrorist attacks and uncertainty around the future of the economy and job security, Trump's pumped up strongman's performances are attractive to these voters. They pine for a more idealistic time in American history when the world was less complicated and less dangerous and the country's place in it was assured. This is why Trump's simple slogan of, America, of Make American Great Again resonates with these voters. Trump's also capitalized on the fears of a jittery American public in the wake of the Islamic State attack in Paris and the ISIS-inspired mass shootings in San Bernardino. And since those attacks, terrorism has become the biggest concern of the public, especially Republicans or Republican-leaning voters. This explains Trump's recent surge to new highs up to 41% in polls among Republicans. Trump has turned the immigration issue into a major national security issue, and the Republican Party is likely to struggle to win over independents or moderate swing voters or minorities, a critically important voting bloc in a presidential election after Trump has tarnished the Republican brand. The party must win over these voters if it has any chance of wresting control of the White House from the Democrats and prevent the likely Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton from winning in November. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Lara Marlowe, Dennis Staunton, Derek Scally, Suzanne Lynch and producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound.